Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Tuesday, November 23rd, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, why we rely on idioms for communication and how some of the more nonsensical ones entered our lexicon. Plus, a company working on a sort of 10,000G slingshot to launch satellites into space with zero emissions just pulled off their first successful test launch. And some reflections on reconnecting with the Earth in this era of the climate emergency without appropriating indigenous cultures. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Just a heads up here that this segment is going to include a handful of instances of a particular swear word, so if you're listening with your kids or just don't like that kind of language, go ahead and skip to the next segment. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Curiosity killed the cat. I got chewed out by my boss. They were just pulling your leg. Why do so many of these almost nonsensical turns of phrase seem to hit on exactly what we mean, sometimes better than actually describing it? Last year, peripatetic linguist Chi Lu dove into this mystery as part of her Lingua Obscura column on JSTOR Daily, and in particular, she dove into the origins of the phrase, shit hit the fan. Here's what she found, quote, The true origins of the expression shit hit the fan are largely undetermined, although some sources suggest that Canada is to blame. It might have come from particularly picturesque Canadian military language of the early 20th century. Another suggestion is that the idiom is descended from an old joke. The joke goes, A man in a crowded bar needed to defecate but couldn't find a bathroom, so he went upstairs and used a hole in the floor. Returning, he found everyone had gone except the bartender who was cowering behind the bar. And when the man asked what had happened, the bartender explained, where were you when shit hit the fan? Variants such as egg, soup, and stuff hitting the fan suggest that the idiom was familiar enough to inspire bolderized versions. Even with the scatological reference toned down, the image splattered across your mind is enough to convey the chaos that could result. It's an idiom that tells an evocative micro-story in a handful of common words. End quote. So that's one, like many idioms, where you can kind of get what it means even if you don't know the origins of the phrase or have never heard the phrase itself before. Like barking up the wrong tree, or there's plenty of other fish in the sea. Give it a minute and you can probably piece out what it means. But other phrases, if you've never heard them before, as many an English language instructor can attest, make absolutely no sense. Lou gives the example of getting the short end of the stick. Which end of a stick is supposed to be short, and why would that be a bad thing, necessarily? Well, quoting Lou, One explanation is that, apparently, in medieval England, there were instruments shaped like hockey sticks, which were kept in privies in lieu of paper, where one might have regretted seizing the wrong end of the stick in the dark. End quote. Because so many of these don't really retain their literal or sensical meanings and are just recognized by the familiar turn of phrase, Lou explains that a lot of them can't be changed up syntactically. For example, saying the fan was hit by shit wouldn't have nearly the same resonance. Lou calls idioms such as these a petrified form of speech, and paraphrasing Ralph Waldo Emerson, the fossilized poetry of language. I love that, the fossilized poetry of language. But despite that, idioms still hold a strong power over our interpersonal relations, helping us create sympathy or intimacy more readily. 
Quoting again, Linguists Paul Drew and Elizabeth Holtz found that the use of idioms in conversation doesn't just happen randomly. They noticed a marked use of idioms where people describe personal difficulties in their lives. Idioms also seem to be used even more frequently when speakers need to bring an unsympathetic or neutral audience over to their side, to convince others that their beliefs, their feelings, their grievances are valid, to persuade them to be allies, to legitimize their ideas, end quote. And, of course, it doesn't always work, but Drew and Holt find that using idioms, which people commonly understand to be a sort of metaphor, is more effective than hyperbole, which can easily be disproven or mistrusted. And quoting once more, idiomatic expressions may well be old and shabby language, but they are our own speech, from the Greek idios, one's own. Fossilized idiomatic language, like the newest of new slang and an exclusive subculture, has a special power to draw two people together in a kind of linguistic intimacy, to express intensities of thought and feeling about their uncertain and sometimes unjust worlds when the literal meaning of things just doesn't cut it. End quote. And I like that. The subculture thing, you know, is so true. The in-jokes and turns of phrases that get created within communities that in turn leads to a deeper sense of shared identity is such a powerful thing for good and for ill. Idioms are like our way of doing that within our own languages, and especially given the swift cynicism that's applied to any jokes, slang, or memes that have their moment in the sun these days, I'll be curious to see what, if any, phrases from this time persist and retain their idiomatic meaning even as they lose their literal one. And if you want to learn more about where certain spicier words came from, I highly recommend the Netflix docuseries History of Swear Words, hosted by Nick Cage. It's a really fascinating dive into the etymology of some of the most popular swear words, as well as our modern conceptions and usages of them. Plus, you know, Nicolas Cage. While space exploration is awesome, it's no secret that rocket launches aren't exactly great for the environment. One rocket launch can produce about two to 300 tons of carbon dioxide, about as much as a 10-hour plane flight. Of course, thousands of 10-hour plane flights happen every day, and there are only a little over 100 or so rocket launches a year. But with the number of private companies and more and more nations getting involved in launching people and satellites into space, there's reason to be concerned about the environmental impact. Finding a cleaner way to shoot things into space has been on the minds of space agencies for decades, just without much progress. Back in the 60s, the U.S. and Canada partnered on Project HARP to basically blast objects into space using big ol' guns. They managed to get some missiles into the ionosphere and one briefly into space before the project was shut down. And that's basically been it for major official attempts. But now a company called SpinLaunch is working on a zero-emissions method for launching satellites into space. They call it a kinetic space launch system, and it's basically a giant disk that spins objects at speeds of up to 5,000 miles per hour in a vacuum chamber and then releases them through a Statue of Liberty-sized tube up through the atmosphere. 
That's the suborbital accelerator, but they're also working on the L100 orbital mass accelerator, which is much larger and could launch satellites that weigh up to 440 pounds. Both are powered by an electric drive and would require satellites to be built super tough in order to withstand the high speeds, 10,000 Gs, in the launch chamber. It sounds and looks totally wild, but the company just achieved their very first successful test launch, so maybe it isn't such an out-there idea after all. Quoting Gizmodo, A successful test on October 22nd at the company's base at Spaceport America in New Mexico sent a 10-foot-long projectile soaring to tens of thousands of feet, but that was with the centrifuge running at about 20% of its full power. End quote. The projectile was recovered to reuse afterwards, and Spin Launch has plans to conduct more test flights in 2020 with different launch vehicles and at different launch velocities, with an eye on their first customer launches in 2024. Gizmodo notes, however, that this will probably never be used for human spaceflight. Quote, Humans can easily pass out when experiencing G-forces as low as 3, and they can survive around 9G if the forces last for just a split second. But an object spinning at 5,000 miles an hour experiences g-forces in excess of 10,000, which means the spin launch system is only suitable for satellites built around modern electronics with rugged components that can survive these extreme launch conditions." End quote. Still, if we can reduce emissions for all of the dozens of non-human space launches happening each year, that would still make quite the dent. As we head into Thanksgiving celebrations here in the U.S., I wanted to take a moment to share an old essay from Mary Annette Pember, which she recently republished in Indian Country Today, saying that she was moved to reshare it after the lack of hard action coming out of COP26 and how the piece is unfortunately still relevant 11 years after having originally written it. Pember, a citizen of the Redcliffe Ojibwe tribe, starts the essay discussing frustrations and anger she has rightfully felt in response to how indigenous people are still treated in the public non-native consciousness, from the elementary school Thanksgiving pageants to new agey appropriations of various native practices. It's that last point, though, as well as some other trends that in a way give Pember hope for the future a hope that feels particularly resonant this time of year. Pember recalls an interview she conducted with George Seelstad, an Earth system scientist who worked with NASA during its efforts to collaborate with indigenous peoples in its work on the climate emergency. Seelstad remarked to Pember in that interview, quote, In the Western world, people think that they're not part of nature unless they're out camping. They've forgotten that we are all a part of nature, even at home in the city. Indigenous peoples understand this, end quote. While most Western religions do not celebrate this connection, Pember has observed more and more non-indigenous people hungering for it. This sometimes comes in the form of dabbling in native traditions, quote, some genuine and some outlandish and misguided, end quote. For example, Pember recounts the story of a New York Times journalist who took a bougie trip to Ecuador where a healer in the Achuar tribe gave him a hallucinogenic brew that led the journalist to have a bit of a physical and emotional breakdown. 
Pember sums up the journalist's experience, quote, He could only hear this simple message in the form of a purchase from a preconceived notion of suitably exotic and authentic indigenous peoples. He could have saved himself a lot of money and gained similar insight by simply turning off his phone and going for a walk in the woods, end quote. But, she cops, the fact that folks are seeking out some kind of deeper connection with nature is a good sign. Another New York Times article from 2010 talked about a psychological condition called solastalgia, which is described as, quote, pain experienced when there is recognition that the place where one resides and that one loves is under immediate assault, end quote. But, Quoting Pember at length here, Indigenous peoples have no deep, dark, ancestral secret revealing the meaning of life. The only thing we have is the knowledge that we are a part of this earth, not apart from it. Our spirituality and ceremonies celebrate this simple, profound awareness. American Indian traditions and spirituality celebrate the earth and our connections to it. Solastalgia is simply a fancy name for something we've always known, that we suffer when we mistreat the land, our home. In our traditional ways, we know this unquestioningly. I'm thinking and hoping that non-Indians may be beginning to learn this too. You don't have to go to a sweat lodge, purchase crystals, take an Indian name, or spend money on a vacation to the Amazon. You can make that connection right at home. And we can all work on giving thanks, not only on Thanksgiving Day, but every day for our lives and our precious home, the Earth. From this Thanksgiving, I'm thinking we might gain the courage to work together on taking better care of our home and each other. We might move away from the habits that created the BP oil spill and the tar sand mines of Alberta, develop a mindset that will not tolerate these disasters. On Thanksgiving Day, go outside and breathe in the great gift of air. Walk on the earth. This time of year, it is fairly humming as it prepares itself for winter and its great period of rejuvenation. Poignantly full of death, it also promises rebirth. End quote. Pember should feel free to continue being outraged and annoyed at non-indigenous people's appropriative or worse shenanigans. But all of us could also do with a little more gratitude for our earth right about now and find our own ways to connect with it, to help preserve it, and to remember that we are, as Pember said, a part of it, not apart from it. So at the end of last week, the U.S. Senate confirmed a new head of the National Park Service. Charles Chuck Sams III is a former Navy intelligence specialist and member of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, who has also worked in natural resource and conservation management as well as tribal and state governments, and he has become the very first Native American to lead the National Park Service. Sams is Cayuse and Walla Walla and also has ties to the Yankton Sioux and Cocopa peoples. Ahead of his official confirmation, Sams told senators, quote, The National Park Service is a very special agency with a timeless mission to preserve resources and to inspire current and future generations, and I'm excited to lead that mission. End quote. The National Park Service oversees 423 sites in the country covering 85 million acres. Quoting NBC News, The Biden administration has prioritized the protection and restoration of native lands. On Friday, Interior Secretary Deb Holland, the first 
Introduced, a Native American cabinet secretary ordered the removal of squaw, a derogatory term from more than 650 federal sites on which it appears. Earlier this week, Biden proposed a 20-year ban on oil and gas drilling within a 10-mile radius of a national park that holds historical significance to Native American tribes. In October, Biden restored environmental protections to national monuments in Utah and New England that had been stripped by the Trump administration, end quote. I am a total National Parks fanboy, so the news that after several years of frequent turnover, we now have someone super qualified and passionate leading the agency is pretty exciting. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.